The idea of revival has been on my heart for probably about a year. And it's been a, a burden, a thought, a prayer um, that I have prayed and things I have wrestled with. But in the last few weeks it has really begun to weigh more heavily upon my heart and reach what I guess you would call a boiling point so that it, it has to come out. So we're going to take a departure from our study in Ephesians for a little mini-series on revival that's going to be anywhere from two to five weeks so that I can let this out and we can move back on. Um, I have a book written by one of the great revivalists of the 1800s. His name was Charles Finney. And, and one of the chapters in Finney's book is on when revival is needed. I want you to I want to share some of what he says. Revival is needed when there is a want of brotherly love and Christian confidence among professors of religion. And in his day, professors of religion did not mean a bad thing as we often take it today. He just meant among Christians. Revival is needed when there is a worldly spirit in the church. Revival is needed when the church has sunk down into a low and backslidden state. Revival is needed when, when you see Christians conform to the world. Revival is needed when the wicked triumph over the church and revile them. Revival is needed when sinners are careless and stupid, sinking into hell unconcerned. It is then time the church should bestir themselves. It is as much a duty of the church to awake as it is a fireman to awake when the fire breaks out in the night in a great city. The church ought to put out the fires of hell which are laying hold of the wicked. Sleep! Should the firemen sleep while the whole city burnt down? What would be thought of such firemen? And yet their guilt would not compare with the guilt of Christians who sleep while sinners around them are sinking stupid in the fires of hell. Revival is needed when the church finds its members falling into gross and scandalous sins. Then it is time for the church to awake to cry out to God for revival. Where does revival come from? Who is revival for? What is the actual purpose of revival? Turn with me this morning to Psalm 85. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. It's page 452 if you have a pew Bible. And we're going to try to answer these questions. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. The psalmist writes, Lord... Thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. And thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. And cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. The title of the message this morning is Revive Us Again. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need you today. We need you, Father, to take your word and use it like a mirror and make it to show us for who we are. Lord, as, as human beings, we are fallen and we are easily deceived and we are 
easy to justify our own sins and our own actions. And God, what we need today is for your Holy Spirit to conquer that nature of ours. And Lord, to make it clear to us where we are. Lord, are we fervently devoted to Jesus? Lord, have we fallen into a state where we need revival in our hearts? Lord, whatever the state we're in, you make it clear today. Let the word, let it be the mirror that shows us. And God, let us not turn away from it and be forgetful hearers. But Lord, let us respond with obedience to your word to do what you would have. Bring revival to our hearts, O God. Bring revival to my heart. Oh, that I would always be fervent in spirit and serving you. Father, give us a great outpouring of your spirit this morning in our midst. Lord, he would take the word and he would convict us where we need it. He would encourage us where we need it. He would strengthen us where we need it. That he would do what needs to be done in our lives. That we would be your people fully devoted to doing your will. Holy Spirit, come upon me this morning and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And help me. To say only what needs to be said. Let me not be a hindrance in any way with my, with my attitude or with my words or with anything that I can do. Let it not be me that gets in the way. Oh, oh God. Father, work in us today and have your way. Glorify yourself through what happens here. We need you. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, while we aren't 100% certain of the background of this particular psalm, we do know the heart of the psalm. The heart of the psalm is a prayer for revival. And in praying for revival, the psalmist gives us three facts about revival we, we must know if we are to experience genuine revival. First is, revival comes to the people of God. Right, so notice the, the prayer of the psalmist in these first few verses. Right, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land, and Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. God has brought his people out of captivity back to their homeland. Thou hast been favorable, or thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people and had covered all their sins. So God had forgiven the sins of his people. Verse 3 Thou hast taken away all thy wrath and hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Again, that's toward his people. He prays that God would turn. Turn the people back to God because He is the God of their salvation. And then He prays that God would revive them that they might rejoice in Him. But the psalmist is someone who, who knows God. The psalmist is asking God to revive His people. And, and this, I think, is one of the crucial truths about revival. Revival is not for the lost. Revival is and has always been for the people of God. Now, to revive, it means to recover life or vigor, to be reanimated. And this gives the idea of something that once had life, and then it lost that life, and then something else comes along and re-energizes, reinvigorates, or restores what was lost. Revival is and has always been for the church, for the people of God. Right? It is not our lost neighbors and it is not our lost community that needs revival. They've never had life. They've never had spiritual vigor. It is us, the people of God. We are the ones who need revival. So the question is, do I need revival? That's the question we all have to answer this morning. But how would we know? How would we know if we needed revival? 
How would I know? How would you know if we needed revival? Right? Because we have to have some sort of concrete way to say, this is what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like for us to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn to Revelation 2 and 3. And there are seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. We, I, I wish we had time to look at all seven, but we don't. We're just going to look at three. Three areas where revival may desperately be needed in our lives. But before we go, I want us to stop and just pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you right now to send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to our spiritual condition. Father, it is easy for us to deceive ourselves of thinking we are fervent in spirit serving you when we are half-hearted creatures being far too easily satisfied. So today, let the Holy Spirit come. Let Him take the Word. Let Him apply it to our lives. Help us, Father, lay down any strongholds we have built up or anything that we have that would cause us to push back against the Word. Let the Word reign in our lives. Let Jesus be Lord over us. Have Your way, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, Revelation 2 This is the first one we'll look at, verses 1 through 5. That's page 949 in your pew Bible. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, How thou canst not bear them which are evil, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars, and hast borne, and hast patience for my name's sake, has labored, and hast not fainted. Now this, by all appearances at this point, this is a great church. They strive for holiness, they are hard and consistent workers, they are doctrinally sound, they have discernment necessary to reject false teachers, to, to test them, to see if they're right. And yet, despite... All that they're doing, Jesus has something against them. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So the question, right, do I need a revival of love for Jesus? Do I need a revival of love for Jesus? They had... They had left their first love. They were still busy. They were still active. They were still doing all the things they had always done. But it seems they had begun to do them out of a sense of duty. This is what I'm supposed to do. Not this is what I want to do because I love Jesus. And Jesus, He has something to say to them about it. Look at verse 6. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do thy first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But he tells them they're to do three things. They're to remember first. Remember. Remember the time when you served because you loved. Remember when you used to be fervent in spirit because you loved Jesus. And you thought everybody ought to love Jesus. Remember, repent. Repent of falling away from that. Repent of getting caught up in busyness and duty and getting away from love. Repent from seeing Jesus as an obligation, rather as someone who loves you that you should love back. And return. Go back and do it the way you did it before. Go back so that you're serving out of love. Don't don't stay in this condition, this loveless, duty-filled condition. Go back so that you can serve me because you love me. 
And as much as he says that, he gives a statement that is amazing. Right? Because look at what he says in, in verse 6. I'm sorry, the last of verse 5. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Now what does that mean? Well, look at Revelation 1 and 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks thou sawest are the seven churches. The candlestick represents the church. What Jesus says is if they do not remember, repent and return, He will shut the church down. He would rather there not be a church in Ephesus, rather than there be a loveless church. Because lovelessness, it, it always breeds like legalism and other divisive, Christ-dishonoring attitudes. And he says, if you won't repent, if you won't remember, repent and return, I'll withdraw my hand, I'll withdraw my spirit, I'll withdraw my power, and that church will dry up, and that church will die, and it will be no more, and that is a better option than a church filled with loveless people that are doing things out of a duty. And those are strong words. Do we need a revival of, of love for Jesus? I mean, we, we cannot underestimate how important it is that we love Jesus and that fuel what we do because what is the greatest commandment? We know that, right? To love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. No matter what we do in service to Jesus, if it's not motivated by love, it has no value. We don't have time. But read 1 Corinthians 13, particularly the first four or five verses. If you give your body to the fire, if you sell all that you have, if you do all of this and all of that but have not love, it is meaningless, it is worthless. We cannot just do out of a sense of duty. We must love the Lord our God out of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if our service, our devotion is not built on I love Jesus and so I do, we must remember. We must repent. And we must return. Now look at Revelation 3 verses 1 through 3. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things saith he, Hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. We'll just stop there because that's the big part. Now, if we were to read the rest of the letter, we would find that Jesus does not commend this church at all. Which is significant. In the, in the letters, Jesus' letters always follow a pattern. There is something about his character. There is a, a commendation to the church for their faithfulness in some way. Then there is some sort of correction or condemnation. And then there is like a promise of what will happen if they repent and return and fix the errors. There are two churches that receive no commendation. Jesus says nothing positive or nice about them at all. Sardis is one of those churches. And again, if you've read the seven letters, you know that some of those churches had false teachers and false prophets. They were involved in fornication and various forms of idolatry. And even they received 
some sort of commendation. And yet the church at Sardis receives none. There is a significant, harsh issue that Jesus is bringing to bear in their lives. And it's we find it in verse 1. They have a reputation for being alive, and yet they are dead. They had a reputation for being fully devoted followers of Jesus. But they really weren't. They were like artificial flowers. They looked the part. They looked good. But there was no really life. At one point, there had to have been life. Otherwise, they would have never gotten a reputation for being alive. At one point, they had been fervent in spirit serving Jesus. But now they had lost their passion for Jesus. Or, if you've been in church a long time, the old time preachers would say they'd lost their fire. So the question with this is, do I need a revival of passion for Jesus? Do I need a revival of my my passion, my fervency for Jesus? Now, what we know about the church in Sardis is that what by Jesus' rebuke of them, they were comforting themselves on what they had been. Right? They didn't take they didn't look at their current lives and evaluate themselves. They said, Oh, well, maybe now we're not, but look at what we did back then. Back in that time, we were like this, and boy, we were passionate and fervent then. And they lived on past glory. Rather than relying on present accomplishment. But regardless of what the church had been. They were now dead. uh, Complacent. Satisfied. And apathetic. And that is a very serious warning. To each and every disciple of Jesus. And each and every church of Jesus Christ. But on a church level. We can be sure a church is dying. When it looks more to its past than to its present or its future. We can, as disciples, we can be sure that any disciple who complacently rests on their past. Talk about what God did in the past. How much they were in the past and not of what's going on right now. They are apathetic. They are complacent. They are spiritually dying or spiritually dead and they need revival. Do we need a revival? Of our passion for Jesus. Are we passionate in our service to Him? Is there a stirring in our hearts? When we get the opportunity to gather with the people of God and worship our great God. Is there a stirring knowing that God will meet with us in a special place. Because the church is God ordained institution. Is there a a stirring that we're going to get to study the Word and we're going to pray together and, whoa, God is going to be here and do something in our midst? Is there a passion to to read our Bibles? Is there a passion to pray? Is there a passion at the opportunity to get to tell someone about Jesus? Or do we just go through the motions of these things and get more excited when the end draws near and we can go on and do the stuff that we really like? Do we need a revival of passion for Jesus? And then one more. Look at Revelation 3 and 14. This is the most familiar church. The angel of the church at Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. Now, they also, this is the other church that receives no, no commendation, just rebuke 
from Jesus. Now, what Jesus says in verse 15 about them being lukewarm, I've often heard explained in a way that's misunderstood. I've heard it said that Jesus wishes they were either all the way for Him, they were on fire, they were hot, or that they were all the way away from Him, they were cold. But that's not what He's saying. What Jesus is doing is talking about the issues that the church had. Right? Laodicea was a city of great wealth, but it had one major problem, its water supply. The water that the city received came from an aqueduct located about six miles to the south. By the time the water got to the city, it had been kind of warmed up in the sun and was lukewarm in its temperature. The neighboring cities didn't have that problem. There was a city called Heropolis, and it had hot springs that was famous for its healing qualities. There was Colossae, uh, received cold, pure water from a nearby spring. So when Jesus says he wished they were hot or cold, he's making an allusion to those water conditions. He's saying they aren't cold and can refresh the weary and help someone along the way like the waters of Colossae. But neither are they hot and able to heal the hurting or soothe the sore like the hot springs of Heropolis. Rather, they are lukewarm. And as such, they are not at all helpful for the cause of of Christ. And their lukewarm condition was a reflection of their casual commitment. So there's our third question. Do I need a revival of commitment to Jesus? You see, for the lukewarm Laodiceans, their commitment wasn't strong enough to move them to the place where they would refresh the weary or help the hurting. Their commitment to Jesus wasn't strong enough to really motivate them to do anything for anyone but themselves. Their commitment to Jesus was just enough to soothe their consciences, to make them sure they were probably going to heaven and that they would escape the fires of hell. It was just enough. right? Probably the key question of a Laodicean isn't what can I do for Jesus? The key question of the Laodicean is will that send me to hell? If I don't go to church, will I go to hell? If I do this thing, will I go to hell? That is the key defining factor of the Laodicean. Just enough. What is the bare minimum? You tell me the lowest standard and I'm going to meet it. That's a Laodicean. Now, interesting and important. Laodiceans were not characterized by living sinful lives. Jesus nowhere condemned them for their sin. And he did other churches. So it's not that he was afraid to. He, he didn't because that doesn't seem to have been a problem. It is entirely possible and probable given what Jesus actually says. They lived moral lives. It is possible and probable they went to church. They were still a church. So at times they still gathered together. It's probable. They gave some during the offerings when they went around. Yet because they were only casually committed to Jesus. They received a strict and a stern rebuke. Now, notice, this is the most famous line from this passage, from the story. Verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And that rebuke is related again to the water condition because the people of Laodicea knew well the lukewarm water was nauseating. What Jesus says is their lukewarm condition, it made him want to vomit. Now, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever as Hebrews tells us he is, how do you reckon Jesus feels about a lukewarm commitment to him today? 
think he's okay with it now and like then? Now look at verse 17 because this is really important. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It is almost certain their lukewarm condition was a result of the abundance of all the things that they had. It wasn't that the abundance of things they had was wrong. The abundance of things they had made them forget their desperate need for Jesus. The abundance of the things they had made them forget that they were constantly in need of Jesus for life and breath and all things. And so they became indifferent to Jesus. They became casual in their commitment to Jesus. Casual commitment to Jesus is seen in a lot of ways. Primarily it's seen when we're hit and miss in doing those things that draw us closer to Jesus. Because the scripture teaches there are certain things we do that would help us to know Jesus and experience Him more in our lives. Lukewarm followers are hit and miss with these because they don't care. It's not that big of a deal. So it would be things such as prayer, Bible study, church attendance, finding and using our spiritual gifts, telling others about Jesus, generosity, giving all diligence to add to our faith, holiness, serving others, and on and on we could go. But all of the things the Bible says, this is what we do because we, because we serve Jesus. We're just kind of intermittent as it's convenient, as I want to, never too hard, Never too long, never uncomfortable, just in ways that kind of keep me within my circle and my bubble. And all of that reveals a heart that is completely lukewarm to Christ. A, a lukewarm commitment to Jesus, it causes us to put more faith in a political party than in the gospel. It causes us to be more upset with that the other party might win the election than the fact the world around us is going to die and go to hell unless they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, do, we, do we need a revival. Of commitment to Jesus. We talk about problems. In the world. Problems in the church. Often Christians have been guilty. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 85. We've been guilty of cursing the darkness. We, we come in our church buildings. We stand. And we look out the windows. And we cuss all of those people. Who aren't here. All of those who are wicked, all of those who are sinful, who are cursing the darkness, when the reality is the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The problem is in our casual commitment. The problem is in our lack of love. The problem is that we have lost our passion for Christ. Revival isn't needed for them. Revival is needed for the people of God. It must start here. Second truth about revival is that revival comes from God. Right, the psalmist prays in verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again? He is petitioning God to send revival on the land. He feels they as his people are dying. They are faint and they are feeble. They are in desperate need of God of doing what only he can do. God had revived them at other times. He knows the stories. And he knows that his God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he cries out, do it again, Lord. The psalmist knew that revival comes from the Lord. Since revival is God sent, it cannot be planned or programmed. We can schedule revival services, but that's not a schedule of a revival. Revival is something that God does on his own. He sends it. But when you look at revivals, both biblically and historically, 
you find that there are at least three constants in all genuine revivals. Three, three things that are always there when God sends revival. First, there is recognition. The very first thing that, that comes when revival comes is the people of God begin to recognize we need revival. And different revivals describe the recognition in different ways. Some talk about a deeper hunger for the Lord. Others talk about people just longing for more. There just has to be more. Others talk about a, a burden or a brokenness. Sometimes it's a burden or a brokenness over the loss of the land. Sometimes it's a burden or a brokenness over the church, not seeing souls saved and lives changed. Sometimes it's a burden or a brokenness over the apathy and complacency within the church. Sometimes it's a burden over the worldliness within the church. But it's always kind of the, the same basic idea. People realize something is wrong. And things cannot go on as they have. Something needs to change. Only God can do it. That recognition is the first characteristic of revival. The second is repentance. Because recognizing the, lead, the need for revival, it led the people to repent. They repented for leaving their first love. They repented for becoming complacent. They repented for being casually committed. They repented of worldliness and sin. They, they repented... For the lack of brokenness over the lostness around them. Many revivals were born not in preaching services. But in people gathering around the altars. Or gathering at the church at, at noon on their lunch break. And crying out to God to forgive them and restore them. To what the church was meant to be. And the third characteristic was prayer. Recognition and repentance. It always leads people to pray. Because they know it's only something God can do. The revival prayer is not a prayer for slick programs or better this or better that. It's always a prayer for God to do what only God can do. My, my favorite revival prayer is found in the book of Habakkuk. I think we'll probably look at this in, in this series. It's a prayer of Habakkuk. And he says, O oh Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Now, so notice the flow of thought in Habakkuk's prayer. Lord, I've heard reports about what you've done. When he says, I've heard thy speech, he's not saying he's heard God speak necessarily. He's saying he has heard about the great and mighty things that God had done. Habakkuk, as a prophet, was a student of the word. He had been in the Word and through the Word had been taught and made aware of the greatness and the power and the goodness of his God. And he responded to that. He had heard about God and he was afraid. The afraid there is like the fear of the Lord. It's not I was terrified God was going to smite me, but it's more like, oh my gosh, my God is awesome. He was in awe of the greatness and the power and the majesty of his God. Which, by the way, that is the proper response to the great deeds of God we read about in Scripture and in history. He is in awe of the power of his God. As a, as a Jewish man, he had been taught about creation. He had been taught about the exodus, about the Red Sea parting, about God bringing judgment on the Egyptians. And despite he had heard these stories all of his life, he was not over them. They were not children's stories to him. He didn't just think they were nifty. They just made him go, wow, my God is amazing. And then he prays, do it again. Revive thy work. Revive what work? The great works that he had heard about. Do it again. Do all of that stuff again in our day. Now Habakkuk was living in a time where God wasn't necessarily doing big works. 
The people were in rebellion. The, 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 the church of that day, if you would go that, would say it that way, was very much in need of revival. They were not seeking the Lord. They were not serving the Lord. They were very far from God. And so they were missing out on the great and the mighty works of God. But Habakkuk, he doesn't come up with reasons why God can't do it anymore. He doesn't conclude that since he's never experienced those things, that God really doesn't do them. He didn't conclude that it wasn't rational to believe in a great God who did great things. He, he just believed. God is God. He never changes. And what He has done, He can still do. And, and, and in the midst of the years, make known. And what He's saying there is do it again, but do it again now. Do it again right here, right now. But God do big things right here, right now, in Israel's current time of need. That's a big prayer. That's a bold prayer. That's a revival prayer. Since revival comes from God and God alone, we must cry out to God for Revival, once we recognize the need for revival, we must cry out and we must cry out as Habakkuk did. We, we must know what God has done. We, we must be in awe of what God has done. We must believe that what God has done, He still does. And we must pray for God to do it again. We have to, re- we have to recognize, we have to repent, we have to cry out. Because revival comes from God. There would be nothing we could do in this place to make genuine revival happen. We can repent. We can recognize. We can cry out to God. But only God can send the revival that we need that will heal our land and would bring redemption and extend the kingdom in our community. God sends revival. And then finally, revival comes for the glory of God. Notice the last of... Verse 6, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Wilt thou not revive us again? Thy people may rejoice in thee. The purpose of God sent revival is for his people to rejoice in him. The purpose of revival is not the salvation of the lost. Evangelism, that is a, a byproduct of genuine revival. Because when God's people are rejoicing in him, it becomes very natural for them to talk to others about the God who brings them such joy. Now, let me show you this from Scripture. David says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted to thee. David prayed for God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. David had lost the joy of his salvation because of his sin. But sin isn't the only thing that can cause us to lose the joy of our salvation. It could be through worldliness and sin. It could be through the loss of our first love. Right? Because, just think about in a marriage. When husband and wife, they drift apart. Is there a lot of joy in that sort of, we're just going to have to suck it up and stick it out together kind of relationship? Not typically. Think about your job. And you hate your job and you have to go there. It's not because you love the job, but it's just what you have to do. Is there a lot of joy in that? Not typically. In a similar way, if I serve Jesus because I have to, and I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I'll have to serve Jesus. There's not a lot of joy in that. There's not going to be joy in that. When we become complacent, there's not joy in complacency. Can't be. Joy comes from the Lord, and when we are complacent in our relationship with Him, the Holy Spirit's not at work producing that. We don't have the joy of the Lord in our lives. 
when we are casual in our commitment to Jesus. There, there's no joy. Typically, with complacency and a casual commitment, there's no joy because we're always, we always feel a little bit guilty. We know we should do more, but we just don't feel we don't really want to. I'm not going to hell. But, well, that's not really a joyful way to live your life. And so there's no joy in that. And when that happens, there's nothing short of a God-sent revival that will restore the joy of our salvation. That's what David knew. But notice what David would do once God sent revival back into him. He would teach transgressors God's ways and sinners would be converted to him. David's joy in God would naturally lead him to do all he could to tell others about the great God that he served who had given him such joy and forgiven him of his deep and abiding sin. When our joy of the Lord is restored, we naturally tell others about how good and how great and how wonderful Jesus is. This is what leads to souls being saved during revivals. That's the point. The point is God is glorified as His people rejoice in Him. As they are overflowing in their love for Him and they find such joy in Him, they cannot help but tell others about the goodness and the greatness of God. And then God is glorified. Souls are saved. Communities are transformed. Revival has big results. The purpose, initial purpose, is that we would get back that joy of the Lord that motivates us in everything else that we do for Jesus. So our key takeaway this morning is that God will revive us when we long for revival and plead for revival. Now, revival is both personal and corporate. It's personal in that it must first come to the individual. It's not, does Northridge Free Will Baptist Church need to be revived? Because there's no entity that is Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There's, there's people. So if our church needs revival, if our church is to be revived, it's because we as individuals need revival, and we as individuals are Revived, And when we as individuals are revived, then we as a corporate body are revived. And when we as a corporate body are revived, that revival spreads out into the street and in the city. And the people around us begin to be redeemed. And they begin to be transformed. It's the question, do you, do you, do you need revival? Do I need revival? Now the question isn't, does, does my friend Jack need revival? Does my husband and my wife need revival? Or that person over there, that person back there? This is very personal. This isn't the time to be asking, does anyone else in here need it? This is me, me and God, you and God. Do I need it? Do you need it? And if you would say that you do, I'm going to give you four four actions to take regarding revival, particularly as we move through this series. First is to long for revival. It has to be a desire for it. It has to be a longing for what God and God alone can do pastor I listen to sometimes named John Piper says this, do you have a hunger for God? If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things. There is no room for the great. We have to long for it. Secondly, refuse to be content without revival. And there has to be some that says it has to be this way. I must experience revival. I, I must. God must pour out His Spirit upon me. God must do this within me. One of my favorite revivalist preachers 
Leonard Ravenhill said, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. As long as I say, yes, I would like revival, but oh well, you know. Well then, we'll never experience it. Thirdly, be willing to pay the price for revival. Now this is, this is the hardest one. Because revival comes at a cost. We'll not remain the same and be revived at the same time. Our church will not remain the same and be revived at the same time. Revival brings change. And sometimes those changes are painful. Painful personally, painful as a church. And if we are not willing to pay that price, we will not experience revival. Andrew Murray says, A true revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and His love triumph in the heart of life. That's a cool phrase. That sounds awesome. But a revolution that casts the spirit of worldliness and selfishness out of our hearts, out of our church, making God and His love triumph, it's painful. There's a change. There's a cost involved in that. We must be willing to pay the price for revival. And then we must plead for revival. Be no revival without prayer. Be no revival without crying out to God regularly. Not just on a couple of moments here and a couple of moments there, but seriously agonizing, crying out to God. Again, Ravenhill says, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, but few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many riders, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. If we do not pray for revival, we will not experience revival. So what I want you to do is I want you to stand... I was thinking about how to bring this to a close. Revival is kind of a, an old-fashioned thing. So we're going to do an old-fashioned altar call this morning. We don't do those often around anymore. But here's what I want you to do. If you know you need revival, I want you to come down and pray for it. If you long to see revival, I want you to come down and pray for it. And, and I'm going to tell you something. If you are not willing to come down and pray for revival, I'm going to say there's not much chance you are willing to pay the cost for revival. And here's why. Why don't we come down to the altar to pray? We're afraid somebody will look at us. We're afraid somebody will see what we're doing. We, we feel it's just too private. Nobody should see. We're, what will they think about us? We fear. We fear man. We fear all of these things. And if I, in, in a place like this that is devoted to Christ, if I am so afraid of the people in here that are my church family that I cannot come forward and pray, then I am certainly not going to be willing to pay that higher cost that is necessary for revival. So if you long for revival, and you're going to plead for revival, and you're going to do these four things, and you come forward. And if you're not, don't feel guilty. Just stay there and be honest about it. But whatever you do, 
Don't convince yourself you're willing to pay the price if you're afraid of what people think in here.